ahead and let me know when you're ready. Let's open with prayer. Let's pray over this word tonight. Just agree with me. Let's dive into this. One of the things I want to do in this series, paying the price for revival, you know, this is the word of the Lord right now. I don't just preach things that I, just to be a motivational thing or an inspirational. I really pray about it and what God speaks to me. That's what I preach. And I feel this is what God's saying. But in that, in that I, d- I really have a heart to not only that this would um, put a fire and a hunger in people to see a move of God, but I really want to honor the past moves of God. I believe there's something about honoring the fathers and mothers and that will cause God's blessing and longevity. Okay, there's something about this. I want to honor the fathers and mothers of, of revival. So, Lord, we just thank you for your word tonight. We bless you. And as we dive into this, Lord, I thank you even now for the Holy Spirit moving upon the people. Everybody that's going to be listening to this, whether it's live on Facebook, we welcome you guys. Lord, whether it's going out through, you know, videos, Vimeo, etc., going out through the podcast, however people are hearing this, Lord, I thank you even right now for your Holy Spirit moving upon every one of us and help us, Lord, by the Spirit of God to be good, fertile soil for the Word. Our hearts, our minds, our lives, we're not distracted, but we're just... By the Holy Spirit, just locked in and focused, able to give you our best ear, our full attention. Our minds are not going to wander, but our minds will be captivated by the Holy Spirit. What is God saying to us? And Lord, that we can learn, maybe understand things we couldn't before. And Lord, that this will really uh, go forth and bear fruit. It's going to be as living seeds sown in a good soil, watered by the Spirit, and take root growing, but it's a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. Lord, let this go out as a light that dispels the darkness as a washing of the water of the word, as a hammer that breaks through the strongholds. But Lord, let this be truth and let it go forth and be established in people. That people will never forget some of these timeless truths that they're going to hear tonight. It'll stay with them. Lord, not just the words that are said, but even the anointing of the Holy Spirit putting in us something, Lord, a burning hunger for revival in our own personal lives and to see it in many others. And Lord, I thank you for everything accomplished in and through this time that you will be done, that your winds of your spirit carry this out among the nations. It will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. And Lord, you said the birds of the air try to steal the seed, so we agree together, we submit this unto God, we resist the devil, we must flee, we bind anything right now in the name of Jesus that would try to hinder this word from getting where it's supposed to go and accomplishing what it's supposed to do. We bind you now and we command you to back off in Jesus' name. And Lord, I thank you for your mighty angels just clearing away any warfare. This will go forth. As the Bible says, it will not return void, but it will accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. We thank you for it. We believe it. We expect it in Jesus' name. All right, so as we get into this, this is part three. Now, part one, remember I talked about heaven's strategy. In part two last week, I talked about a desperation. How many knows there's got to be a desperation in us for more of God? How many can honestly say that you really are hungry for more of God? For real, like you're hungry for more. You know, a lot of, you go a lot of places, and I love everybody, and I certainly don't mean this as a critical thing, but not everybody's hungry for God. And, and there's a lot of people out there that are pretty content where they are. You'd be surprised how many people out there really don't care for revival. You'd be surprised. But there is a remnant out there that is hungry for more. I mean, it's not just something you say, but there's something in you. There's something down in your belly that you are so hungry to see God do something awesome. 
And there's a, there's a hunger in you for more of him, to see him come in power and change lives. That's a hunger that God's put in you. And I just pray, and I, I pray this for River of Life in general, that God will give you a real encounter that sets you on fire for him. I know when I went to Brownsville years ago, 96, I think it was in March, I went there and God just so touched me. I remember the altar call and I remember just weeping in the balcony or the power of God and, and going down to, even though I was saved, you know, it was so anointed, you just go down and get saved all over again. Every night, you just go down and get saved, I'm telling you. And I remember um, after the fact, just getting prayer and somebody praying over me and just being, just being thrown back under the power of God, just baptized with fire. And something came into me in the way of the fire of God. When I came back from that revival to this day, there was a hunger in me for God. There was a hunger to pray. There was a hunger for the Word of God. There was a burden for souls I had never had before. It was something that God put in me. And so tonight I pray that God will get that in every one of you. So tonight I want to talk about persistence. A um, couple things. Let me start with this. And again, this is going to go in different directions, but at the end of the sermon, it will all kind of come together. So just bear with me. The first thing I want to talk about is restoration. So revival and restoration go together. Revival, let me say it again, revival and restoration are linked together. Now in Joel 1 and 2, if you read that, and then you read Isaiah 58, and you read 2 Chronicles 7, 14, you can kind of bring those things together, and I've taught this a lot, so I'm just going to move through this real quick. There's five things. Five's the number of grace in the Bible. There's humility if we will humble ourselves. There's prayer. There's fasting. There's being a giver. That's a big deal with God. And deeply consecrating our lives. Those five things, if we'll live that out, the Bible promises us revival. It promises us restoration. You know, the Bible says in Isaiah 58, if you'll pray and fast and do it the way God said, he said, you will call unto me and I will answer you. There's a promise of answer prayers. He said, you will cry out to me and I'll say, here I am. There's a promise for God's nearness. So let me just show you this in Joel 2. So in Joel chapter 1, if you read it, it shows the enemy coming in. And when the enemy came, he came in like a locust and was just devouring everything. And God spoke through Joel and said, but if you will call a solemn assembly and you'll come together and humble yourselves and you'll pray and you'll fast and you'll really repent before God, God will hear you. Now, here's the promise. He said that once you do that, you met God's conditions. He said, God will drive away the enemy. What a promise. So as you do that, the Lord will drive away the darkness. He'll push back the enemy, roll back those tides of darkness, and then he said he will release the grain, the oil, and the wine. You know what that is? That's things that the enemy has been devouring. That's things the enemy has been hindering. Now it will begin to come in like it's supposed to. The harvest will come in. And then he said this, not only will God let there be a flow again of fruitfulness, but he said, this is what God will do. God will even restore what the enemy has stolen. All the years that the enemy has stolen, he will, all that the locusts have eaten, 
God will restore. So here's what he's saying. Not only will God release the grain and the oil and the wine, he'll release that, and that'll begin to come in like it's supposed to, but God will so multiply that, multiply upon multiply upon multiply, that he will restore everything that those locusts have eaten over the years. Restoration. And then he said, and I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So you see that in Acts chapter 2 that Peter quoted that, right? But let me say that again. Once you meet God's condition, there's something about humbling ourselves, prayer and fasting and giving and consecrating our lives, those five things. If we'll really seek God, the Lord says, I will drive away the enemy that's been coming against you. I will release the harvest. I will restore everything, all those years the locusts have stolen, I'll restore all that back, and I will pour out my spirit. But you'll notice there's a link between the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and restoration. Did everybody see that? All right. Then Isaiah 58, because I'm going somewhere with this, because I'm talking about revival. Isaiah 58, he said, if you will pray and fast this way, and he rebuked him. He said that you say to yourselves, you know, we fast and, and God hasn't hurt us. Well, God said, you know why I didn't hear you? Because you're sitting around bickering and fighting with each other. You're wronging people. You're saying things with your mouth you shouldn't be saying to people. You're doing things you shouldn't be doing. And then you're going to fast and pray. It doesn't work like that. God said, here, let me tell you how you're supposed to fast. He said, put all the wickedness away. Repent. Then God gave him the steps, you know, humble yourself. It's a time to give to the poor. It's a time to seek me in prayer and fasting. He said, if you will do that. Now, listen to some of these promises. The glory. He said that your light will break forth like the dawn. And he said the glory of God will be your rear guard. The glory. See, we've prayed and fasted here recently, and we, this pretty much happens every time. We went through a season of it. And what happened on the other side? The glory has been thickening and increasing, you see. So the glory will increase. And then he said this, healing and health will come. He said, I will make you like a well-watered garden and your healing will quickly appear. There's a promise of health. And then this is what I wanted to really get to. He said, and I will restore. Not, not only in Isaiah 58 was he saying that he would restore to you as an individual, but he was saying that I will use you to be restorers to others. And I love what he said here through Isaiah. He said, you will be among those that rebuild the ancient ruins. How many knows that there's some ancient ruins out there? Let's just talk just for a moment about Dallas. There was a time in the 40s and 50s under Gordon Lindsay and that we still had the Christ for the nations over there, but there was a time that Dallas, Texas was the hub of the revival. The great healing revivals that was taking place through Branham and, 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 and Jack Coe and A.A. Allen and all, Oral Roberts and all these guys and many others, all of it was kind of, there was the hub was here in Dallas. What has happened? Where is that, you see? So see, the enemy comes in and there's, there's like the enemy tries to, you remember what the Bible said about Jezebel? Elijah came in and he said that Elijah rebuilt on Mount Carmel the altar that Jezebel had torn down. See, there's ancient ruins where God had done something, but the enemy came in behind that and tore down that. Also, he said, you will raise up age-old foundations. 
How many knows that we're living in a day that some foundations are being removed? Did you know there are places, literally, and I'm not saying this again in a mean way, but there are places that are not really preaching the gospel anymore. It's almost like an anything goes. It's like an all roads lead to heaven type of message just to tickle the ears. There's literally foundational messages in a lot of places that used to be Pentecostal. What has happened that you'll never hear tongues, you'll never see the power of God? Where's the baptism in the Holy Ghost? Where's altar calls? What's happened? foundational messages, foundational things are being torn down. The repair of the breach, just like in Nehemiah's day, he had to rebuild the wall that was around Jerusalem, and there was big gaping holes in the wall that the enemy could come through. Because of sin and because of worldliness and things not right, there's big gaping holes in the walls of protection in, in much of the body of Christ, and the enemy's been coming in. But listen, when you are a people of humility and prayer and fasting, and you're doing things right, God can use you through revival to rebuild those ancient ruins, to raise up the age-old foundations again and repair the breach because when people repent and get things right with God, the breach closes and there's, they're sealed off and there's protection again, you see, because they're living right. And he said, restore of streets to dwell in. That was the thing that I miss in the 90s revivals because... It may be here, but it's not too many places right now. But I remember seeing people come, and they would line up outside. They were so hungry to come to God's house that they were willing to, to come and be there all day in the, in the heat of the sun in Florida, just to come into the presence of God. And I remember seeing people so hungry and on fire and dancing, and they couldn't wait to get into the presence of God, and the services were electric. And you see, restore streets to dwell in, that people are rejoicing again. People are gathering in the presence of God. So see, revival comes, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and linked to that outpouring is restoration. God begins to move in a way to restore in the lives of people what the devil has stolen, including your lost loved ones, your kids. Many of them get saved in revivals. Parents have prayed. God gets them there, you see. Restoration breaks forth. The things where health, financial, Restoration comes even on a broad scale that God uses maybe a local group, but he uses them to help the greater body of Christ to see ancient ruins rebuilt, foundations laid again, and the repairing of the breach, etc. So I'll give you some examples as we go and then bring it together. But God has been restoring for years. What the early church had for the first 300 years, the devil came in, perverted Christianity through Constantine and the rise of Roman Catholicism, and it became something that was pegging to the degree that even the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was lost. We went into the dark ages. True Christians had to go underground and be in hiding so they wouldn't be burned at the stake. So God began a restoration process in 1517, he gives this revelation to Martin Luther, a German monk, that salvation comes by faith in Christ alone. It's not by works, it's by faith. Martin Luther had had a belly full of things. He saw even indulgences where people could pay money in advance so they could go sin. This was sanctioned by Roman Catholicism. He saw the relics and the worship of idols, and he got tired of it. 
And in seeking God, God gave him, all he got was this little revelation. But that one little revelation, that salvation comes by faith in Christ alone, that sparked the Protestant Reformation. And God used that to restore back the message of salvation by faith in Christ, okay? Then, I'm not going in any particular order, and I'm certainly not being exhaustive. I'm just giving some examples. But like we talked about last week, the Great Azusa Street Revival was used by God to release restoration of the baptism in the Holy Ghost and fire. Tongues were restored. And isn't it interesting that God seems to always use the people that man wouldn't pick? Is in the Sousa Street Revival was back in the days of the Jim Crow laws and segregation, and God chose to use some impoverished black people to bring revival. I love it. Number three, the great revivals of the 40s and the 50s. God used them through people like William Branham and, and, and um, Oral Roberts, and there were many others, but you saw there the restoration of the gifts. You saw there the restoration of the healing ministry and the deliverance ministry. And you saw the beginning of the restoration of the fivefold ministry that that was now being discussed again, the office of the prophet, the apostle, the evangelist. It was now beginning to be talked about again. So there was a process of restoration. So every time there's been an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God has also been in the process of restoring something that the devil had stolen. In the 80s revivals, you have people so powerfully used. I think of Kenneth Hagin, I think of uh, Derek Prince and many others, but used to help bring a revival of tremendous teaching to the body of Christ with signs and wonders. I mean, the Holy Spirit would fall in Kenneth Hagin's meetings, in Derek Prince's meetings, the demonstrations of the power of God to deliver people. But that teaching was so necessary. God had to bring maturity to the body. So there's a great revival of teaching that came in the 90s revivals. There was a lot going on there, but in the big picture, God restored back the glory to the church. And that was really what one of the greatest things, I think, that happened in the revivals of the 90s was the, glory, the thick glory of God came back. And then finally, we're living in a time when there's still some restorations going on, but one of them, I believe, has to do with the Hebrew roots of the faith, that people are returning back to the root system that God intended to always be there. So during times of great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you also see the great restoration of God, the great restoration of truths, things that have been stolen by the devil will be restored. Can you put that on schedule, please, for me? And so the second thing I want to talk about is this. I want to honor some, some of those that's gone on before us, okay? So give me just a moment here. The restoration of the pure gospel. It began with Martin Luther. I know that in the 1517, okay? But I love the story of John Wesley. Let me just give you a couple quick things. So John Wesley making this brief, but he grew up an Anglican, and his father was an Anglican preacher, pastor to church, and that's the Church of England. It was a, like a split off of Roman Catholicism. It was a lot like Catholicism, but Church of England. And John Wesley's mother 
was the one that stayed home, and she was very um, disciplinarian. She was very disciplined as well. I mean, wake up at this time, you do this, you do your chores, we're going to have a Bible study, you're going to learn this, you're going to, you know, real discipline. Well, that was actually a very good thing for John Wesley because he grew up very disciplined, and he was going to need that later in life. And John Wesley, that was the whole thing about the word Methodist, Methodism, was that John Wesley was so pragmatic, he was very systematic in the way that he did things, and it went back to the way his mom raised him, you see. But let me give you a few things about John Wesley. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So John Wesley, here's an interesting story. You ready? Wesley had grown up Anglican, grew up as, as a preacher's son, but later on in life, he was on board a ship bound for the Georgia colony, coming from England, bound for the Georgia colony in early 1736. And there was a ferocious storm that shredded the mainsail and flooded the decks. Now, probably none of us here in this room have been on a boat like this where there was a ferocious storm in the middle of the ocean. But it, it is really a fearful thing. Because if the boat goes down, your odds of survival are very slim in that type of a storm, you see. Now, many of the English passengers aboard screamed in terror that they would soon be swallowed by the deep. But there was a group of Moravian missionaries from Germany calmly singing through the whole thing. <laughs> they were unafraid of death, and it astounded Wesley he later recounted in his journal. So let me stop and rewind real quick about the Moravians. So they came from Moravia, and there was some uh, civil war or something going on there that they were escaping from. And there was a wealthy man named Count Zinzendorf, okay, that gave them land. In fact, here in America, in the Carolinas, and to this day it's called Moravian Falls over there, but he gave them land that they could come and settle. And they came there, and there was a lot of infighting between them. And Count Zinzendorf kind of met with them. And we don't know everything said, but he kind of set them straight. And I believe, if I remember correctly, they took communion together and prayed. But it was out of that time of him encouraging them that they need to get along that they began to institute prayer. And the Moravians began what, over time, morphed into literally 24-7 prayer. Isn't that awesome? They, they had times of the day that different people would pray. And so they began to have this, just like you, you know, we talk about IHOP in Kansas City, keeping that going, but they began to have this constant flow of prayer. In that atmosphere of prayer, the heavens opened and God's presence was there. And they had such a revelation from God of the gospel and of the word of God, and because of the revival that was going on among the Moravians, they would send missionaries out to win the lost. And so that's what was going on here. Here were some Moravian missionaries on a boat, and they just happened to be there with Wesley. The boat seems to be going down, and everybody there is terrified, and he sees these couple more Moravian missionaries just singing away. And so 
That journey marked Wesley's first significant encounter with this small Protestant movement that would have enormous influence on his ministry and the Methodist movement he started because he was asking the missionaries, why aren't you afraid? And they told him, because we know that we're saved and we know that if we die, we're going to go to be with Jesus. And so he had to begin to do some soul searching in himself that even though he grew up in a preacher's home, if he was to die in that shipwreck, he was not sure he would go to heaven. So why is it that those Moravians are so sure they're going to heaven? That began something in Wesley's life. So two years later, a disheartened Wesley was back in England wrestling with his Christian faith after a miserable time in Georgia. And on May the 24th, this is kind of a famous thing that a lot of people have heard about. May 24, 1738, friends prevailed upon him to attend a Moravian Society meeting at Aldersgate. And so he went there. And that was where God began the first move of God in his life. Many United Methodists can recite what happened next. That night, upon hearing Martin Luther's preface to Romans, Wesley wrote in his journal, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation that night. Wesley's spiritual awakening was the turning point in his life, and arguably it might have been what happened it might not have happened without the Moravians. So Wesley had to come to a place where he realized that he was just religious, but he was not necessarily born of God. And God began to move in his life the gospel of salvation. He gave his life to Christ. He trusted in Christ alone for salvation, and his heart was strangely warmed, and God began a move in his life that ended up really shaking all of America. So what happened was, as Wesley got this revelation about salvation, he thought everybody would want to hear it. And so he began to go through America and trying to preach in churches. But even in his own father's church that his father had pastored for years, wasn't there now, when he went there and tried to preach the gospel, they didn't want to hear it. It would, the, the institutionalized church did not want to hear that message. And so they kicked Wesley out of the church. He ends up ministering on the streets, preaching the gospel. But because of his ministry in Whitfield and others, we have to this day in history recorded the first great awakening in America. Isn't that awesome? But Wesley had to endure because I'm talking about perseverance tonight. Wesley, a lot of people think about all the success because of all the souls being saved, but Wesley also had people persecute him. While he's preaching, people would throw like a dead cat at him, would throw rotten fruit at him. He had his, his fair share of hecklers that would mock his message. There was times that things even got violent. One account, Wesley had to flee from a mob that was bent on hurting him and possibly killing him, and he had to run and jump into a lake to escape them. But yet Wesley kept persevering, never gave up. And because of the revival through Wesley's ministry, as he preached the gospel of salvation, what does the Bible say? Let me read it again. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. 
See, the institutionalized church, once again, had lost the gospel, but God was sending revival. And what was part of the revival? To restore the message of the gospel. How many times, for example, at Brownsville did we hear the messages Steve Hill preached? And he would say things like this. You, tonight, you can die and go to hell with baptismal waters on your face, still having a communion wafer in your mouth, holding a hymnal in your hands, And he was saying, religion will never save you. You have to be born of God, you see. The gospel had to be restored. So the gospel is the first thing that God is always, when revival comes, that's the focus, that's the first thing, that's the main thing, is that the message of the gospel is restored. And I believe that's the most important foundation, that God is rebuilding those ancient ruins and restoring those age-old foundations. That's the most important right there, is that the gospel is restored. But we've got to have persistence. There was a man by the name of James McGreedy. Years, a few years later, after the First Great Awakening. See, the First Great Awakening happened right before we signed our Declaration of Independence. It was right after all of that, the late 1700s, that James McGreedy began to really seek God. And he, he was in the Carolinas and he was a fiery preacher, man. I mean, he was a man of prayer and fasting. He was somebody that would preach revival messages. He, he preached repentance. He would preach against sin. How many knows that not everybody likes that? He had some people that loved him, but he had some people that hated his guts. As a matter of fact, some of them came to the church apparently intent on burning it down. And they, they only burned down his pulpit in the front area. But James McGreedy had to have persistence And so he went there that following Sunday and stood on the ash heap of what was burned, opened his Bible, and preached again. And this time he preached the message, Oh, Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't have it. And he rebuked the area. And history records that there was a group, Daniel Boone told him about Kentucky, And there was a group of Irish Presbyterians that were moving that way. I mean, it was new territory. It's kind of dangerous, but Daniel Boone said it was good. So they went, and he went with them. He gets out into this new area, Kentucky, and he starts a church there again. Small church, a lot of homesteaders. They would come when they could. But James McGreedy, again, was a man of prayer and fasting. He never gave up. He was persistent, and he began to pray and fast and preach. Fiery messages. You know what? All the people that started coming there began to get right with God. They began to repent of their sins. There was a revival in that church. And so God began to move on his heart in the late 1700s that he needed to start gathering with other believers, even other denominational churches, and gather them together at least once a year, and let's pray and fast, let's take communion together, and let's believe God to really come down and do a mighty thing. And so he began to encourage, and you know what? They started doing that. In history, records it as the Great Red River Revival. In the first year, hundreds came, and they were mightily touched by God. And how many knows, if you ever really get touched by God for real, and you go back and you talk about it, people feel it. They don't just hear it, they feel it. There's a difference. 
And so people start going back talking about these camp meetings. This is where people wonder, because you hear the phrase camp meeting, right? Where did all that start? It started right here in our history. And so James McGreedy said, we need to do this again. So in 1800, they gather again. Now it goes from just hundreds coming to now thousands are coming to Red River. And among them was a preacher named Barton Stone. He came from Cambridge. He was a Presbyterian preacher. He was a brilliant man, very analytic. He knew multiple languages. He was very intelligent. And he brought, he brought with him to the Red River Revival a heathen, thinking, man, this guy needs to get saved, right? It brings him there. Same thing. People gather by the thousands. They're, they're there to pray and fast and seek God, asking God to pour out his spirit. They're going to take communion. Well, the Holy Spirit falls. And Barton Stone is there. As he, he's just this brilliant man. He's looking at all this, and he's amazed at what he saw. Let me just talk a little bit about revival at Red River. Barton Stone saw this. He said the Holy Spirit would fall. You could hear shrieks. People, large groups of people would just be struck down under the power. Nobody was touching. I mean, it, just, it was like a wind blew in and knocked them all down. And he said that he was watching this and recording this, and he said this Baptist lady had come and brought a couple of her children, a couple of daughters. And one of her daughters was struck down like that. And she was nervous about it because she was down there for a while. And she thought, well, maybe something's wrong with my daughter's health or something. And she's really concerned. But her daughter seemed to be okay. And she would kind of mumble and she would come to. And she would be saying things like, Jesus, Jesus, forgive me for my sins or whatever. And she would go back out. And her mom kind of realized God must be really doing something. After a long time, her daughter gets up, and she looked like a new person. Her face looked like her face was shining, and her daughter begins to preach the gospel. And the people around her, adults that heard her, all of a sudden, they, many of them were struck to the ground and had the same experience she just had. And Barton Stone was watching this. He's recording this. He said the power of God was so present that he looked at some of the people. The Holy Spirit fell upon some people, and they would shake violently under the power and he said that their face would so shake so fast, so violently, so fast on its own. He said, it's not humanly possible that you could do that, even if you tried. He said their face would move so fast back and forth that it would literally blur their facial features. He said he saw some women in deep travail that was going back and bowing forward. And he said it was with, the Holy Spirit was on him so powerful. It was at such force that they were going back and forth so fast. He said, you couldn't do that. He said, if you tried to do it, you couldn't. Their hair would come loose. He said their hair was like a whip. And there was this deep bowing. He said that he saw the most, probably the two most common things he saw was people being swept down under the power, but they were getting up transformed in Christ. And the second thing was that the fear of God was present. How many knows when the Holy Spirit comes, there's a fear of God? And the fear of God was present, and because of the holy fear of God coming into the place, some people would try to run. And as they would run, they wouldn't make it, man. They would just fall out halfway through their run. And he said that that kind of happened to his friend that came with him. His friend just went out, and he got saved during the Red River Revival. And so Barton Stone saw all this, and he knew, he concluded, it was kind of funny, he said that he recorded all these manifestations of the Holy Spirit. He had never seen God come in such force like this, but he saw so many people saved 
So many people's lives transformed. And then they would get up preaching the gospel. He said, he concluded after all this, because again, he's very brilliant, very analytical. He said, this has to be God because the devil would never do this. He said, listen to what he said. He said, these people are repenting of their sins. They're accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then they're preaching the gospel and seeing other people get saved. He said, the devil would never do that. He said, this is a move of God. And so he goes back having experienced this move of God to Cane Ridge. And he goes to his little Presbyterian church there and he tells them, he says, guys, we need to do this here. And so he said, we want to we just announce it and get people to come here as well. Let's gather together with other denominations. Let's begin to seek God in prayer and fasting. Let's come together, take communion, and believe for a mighty move of God. So he built something thinking three to 500 people would come. In 1801, our, mili- our military, our military records that there was somewhere between 20 to 30,000 people descended on Little Cane Ridge. They were ready for three to 500. And so Barton Stone, totally unprepared, the Holy Spirit fell, and he, there was, you could see Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist preachers scattered all throughout the field, standing up on a, you know, maybe in a tree branch. They were sitting up there, maybe on a stump, preaching the gospel. And I could go on and on, but the same manifestations of the Holy Spirit fell now at Cane Ridge that fell at Red River. People swept down by the hundreds at a time, repenting, getting right with God. It was awesome. But you know how it all started? It all started with James McGreedy willing to be persistent. Even if people were going to burn down his pulpit, even if people were going to cuss him out, even if he was going to be in adverse circumstances, he was still going to be persistent. As a man of prayer and fasting, and somebody that was going to preach it like it is, and he was going to get with others, and he was persistent. And because he persisted, we had the great Cambridge Revival that took place in our nation. You know, even after the first great awakening with Wesley, our nation began to wane. And this great uh, camp meeting revival that shook our nation at this time kind of brought things back on track spiritually where it needed to be. And let me tell one more story, and then I'll kind of close this thing out. This one really sticks out to me, though, about being persistent. Because if you want revival, you've got to pay a price for revival, but you've got to be persistent. And let me encourage you guys to pray because I've seen this many times that people hear about things, but until people experience it for themselves, you see, pray that in and through River of Life, people will have a, a personal encounter with God that will transform them. That's what Steve Hill always said. And I, I was able to spend some time with him, but he told me, he said, you know, People need that. People need an encounter for themselves, you know. And that will change you forever. Once you meet the living Christ, the risen Christ, you'll never be the same. So here's one more quick story I want to share. This is about a burned-out missionary by the name of Edward Miller. He went to Argentina in the late 40s. Edward Miller goes there. And you got to understand back then, and I mean the Argentinian people tell you that at that time, Argentina was probably one of the most backward places in regards to Christianity. It was known as like a missionary graveyard. 
People went there, and nothing was accomplished. I mean, they were frustrated. It was like there was some kind of a stronghold there that Satan had. Edward Miller got there, and he wanted to be, you know, he felt led to go, but he was going to do what every good missionary does. He was going to get up, and he was going to spend some time with the Lord, but he was going to go out and witness, and he was going to try to get out there with the gospel and, and, and be a missionary, you know, be a, an evangelist. And I mean, nothing happened. He was there for a long period of time, didn't see one person saved, didn't see anything happen. He was frustrated. He was ready to leave. And God spoke to Edward Miller and said, I want you for eight hours a day, just like you would clock in at nine and clock out at five, you know. He said, I want you to give me eight hours a day that you seek me in prayer. Now, other missionaries and people were saying, no, that's not God. But Edward Miller heard from God, and he began to pray. Now, y'all follow this story because this whole thing is very interesting. He said as he began to seek the Lord in prayer, and he also began to do some fasting, he said that it was so dead and dry and difficult. How many have ever felt that way, you see? But he didn't give up. He kept persisting in it day after day, day after day. After a couple months, though, of it being really dry, he told the Lord, he said, man, if something doesn't happen, I'm going to have to just pick up my tracks and my, you know, my Bible and everything and get back out here and do what I'm supposed to be doing because maybe I didn't hear from you like I thought. And so there was this story. Edward Miller was persisting. It was difficult that another missionary had a son that was away from God, and so he brings his son to Edward Miller. And Edward Miller begins to talk to him and all this, and it seemed like nothing was happening at first, but all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just fell on this guy's son, and the son broke down and wept and repented and got right with God. And then the missionary took his son back and was excited, and, and God spoke to Edward Miller and said, when I desire to bring in the harvest, I can bring them in. Now you get back in prayer like I told you. So Edward Miller said, okay. So he went back into eight hours a day, day after day, day after day, persistent. Over a period of time, something broke. And he said the Holy Spirit moved in where he was at. And he, Elila Terhune was able to interview him and have some time with him. And he said it was like liquid golden honey. And she said, well, why do you describe it like liquid golden honey? And he said, because it was so thick, but it was also so sweet. And he said, I was just in the glory of God. He got his personal breakthrough. So first, God had to break through something for him on a personal level. And so then after that broke through for him, in prayer, God spoke to him and said, now I want you to gather some others to come and pray with you. And so Edward Miller thought, well, you got to understand, the church of Argentina was spiritually dead. It was, it was challenging enough just to get people to come to church, let alone to come to a prayer meeting. And to make things worse, God told Edward, he said, listen, you tell the people that come, I want you to start praying at 8 o'clock at night and go to midnight, and if they're not willing to stay the whole time, don't even bother to show up. And Edward Miller said, well, nobody's going to come. And I'm, so he, he says, all right, so he begins to announce it, if you'll come and pray with me. Of course, nobody really came, but there was three people 
And here's what happened. There was, <laughs> there was a timid young girl, a backslidden man that had resisted the call of God on his life, and his young wife, the three people. I want you to hear this because I want this to really hit home with you. Four people, all right, and they begin to pray. Again, Edward Miller says, it's like plowing. I mean, he got his personal breakthrough, but now he's trying to get this corporate breakthrough. And as they began to pray, he said, man, it was dry. It was difficult. And they were, they were persistent. Night after night, nothing happened. And he, he was kind of getting desperate, so he would ask him at the end of the night, hey, did anybody see anything or feel anything? Did you feel led to do anything? Anything come to mind at all? Anything. And this, you know, he was getting desperate. And uh, night after night, this was going on. Nothing, dry, dead. And finally, when he's asking that, right? He keeps asking. And finally, one night, one of the young ladies, I believe it was the young wife of the man, said, well, said, we were praying, and I felt the Lord tell me to go to the middle of the room there and just strike that table. But she said, I thought that was so ridiculous. I just dismissed it and kept praying, you know, and Edward Miller's like, now, wait a second. <laughs> you know, he's desperate. And he said, and she, she was shy, you know, and it would have felt stupid. So he said, I'll tell you what. He said, I'll go hit the table first, and everybody else will hit it, and then you can hit it last. That way you don't feel stupid. But if God told you, and listen, before somebody says anything, why does God do anything? Why does God do the things he does? Why did God tell Moses to throw his rod on the ground? Why did God tell Moses to hold his rod up over the sea and make it part? I don't know. Why did God tell Elisha that time to tell the king to shoot the arrows out the window? Remember that and strike them on the ground? But anyway, so they go, they, Edward Miller hits the table. The others hit the table. And listen, everybody say this, dry. I mean, it was dead, right? That young lady that God spoke to goes up there and just hits the table. And here's what happened. After she struck the table, he said immediately out of nowhere, a rushing wind swept through the room from the southeast corner, and in seconds, the retiring, timid servant girl was on her feet, worshiping the Lord, her hands raised in the air. Her face was transformed, radiating the joy and the glory of the Lord as she spoke in an unknown tongue. And the backslidden, rebellious man who had consistently resisted the call of God on his life fell under the table and began to worship the Lord in unknown tongues. So his wife cries out, well, me too, Lord, and she broke forth in tongues. He said this. Now, listen to what Edward Miller said. Something happened in the heavens that night. In June of 1949, something shifted in the heavenlies when that young woman finally obeyed God and struck the table. In the months and years after her simple act of obedience Releasing the presence of God, people began for the first time to respond freely to the gospel in the city uh, or city bell where they were. Isn't that something? So Edward Miller had to pay the price in his own personal life of seeking the Lord for eight hours a day, dead and dry, keep doing it, keep doing it, until finally he got his personal breakthrough. Then he got a few together and they did the same thing until they got a corporate breakthrough that broke something open for their city, okay? 
So Dr. Miller was able to set up a Bible institute there in City Bell. This was a city just outside of Buenos Aires. It was to train Argentine workers. In June, now listen to this. This is amazing. So let's go back real quick. Edward Miller gets his personal breakthrough. He gets those three other people. They get a corporate breakthrough. Now, for the first time, people are getting saved. Things are happening in the city. Something broke. And so uh, Dr. Miller was able to start like this Bible Institute, and, and, he, and people actually got saved and were coming to it. And he had around 50 students. So in June of 1951, listen to this story. An angel of the Lord appeared to a young Polish student named Alexander who had come from the deep forest of Argentina to attend Dr. Miller's Bible school. This young man was uneducated, okay? But this young man used to be a gang leader and a troublemaker. He had experienced a miraculous encounter with God in one of Dr. Miller's meetings in Chaco, and he became a young man of prayer. After God saved him, he became somebody that was a young man that really sought God in prayer, personal prayer, okay? So what he would do is when the other students would go to bed at night, he would kind of sneak away out in the woods and he would spend time in prayer by himself. Well, one night when he was in the woods by himself, all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And the presence of God was so powerful, radiating off that angel, that it scared him half to death. He runs as fast as he can back to the Bible school, begins to beat on the door, and it took forever for them to get up. And finally, somebody let him in. Alexander just runs in as quick as he can, and the angel right behind him. The young people that were there, true story, all the young people that were there, it says all of a sudden they were awakened, but this presence of God, I don't know if any of you have ever felt this before, it was like it was nothing there, and all of a sudden when this came in, the presence of God just exploded like fast, and it woke everybody up, kind of jolted everybody, and this presence of God was so powerful, all the students were awakened, and they began to deeply pray and repent of their sins. Dr. Miller records that this continued for several days and nights. And so he canceled all Bible school classes because the presence of God was so intense there. People were deeply repenting and getting right. After the 50 students and faculty began to seek the Lord in prayer, the angel returned and stood by Alexander. Alexander, this uneducated young man, had an open vision in which he saw the end-time revival. Y'all hear what I'm saying? This is 1951. Alexander, God chose this young man who was uneducated to give him the most profound vision. He saw, like from an aerial view, like you were kind of soaring over the earth, he saw the end-time revival. And the people that were there around Alexander said that in this open vision that he was kind of going from place to place. He was totally in this vision, kind of like when Peter was in a trance and saw that coming down. Remember the animals? He was kind of caught up in this vision. Alexander went on for hours 
in this vision saying places the Holy Spirit would fall before Jesus would come. And here's the thing, this uneducated young man would say it in their native tongue that he did not know. So he was going to different places and he would speak Spanish and then go over here and he would speak English and over here and speak Swahili, whatever. And, and Dr. Miller said that it was impossible to actually record all this because it was happening. There was such a holy presence. Everybody was just in awe of what God was doing anyway. But he said that, that it was happening rather quickly. This young man was just saying one place after the next place and it was in a different dialect. But he said he did remember that Alexander stated very clearly that Toronto, Canada would see a great move of God. That was in 1951. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where Catherine Kuhlman's ministry was used so powerfully. That was just one of many places. This went on for hours. Isn't that awesome? How would we like to see this type of move of God? And for 10 weeks, 10 weeks, this angel returned around 50 times. And the presence of God was so strong in deep repentance. He said it was like the fear of God. It was like a horrific conviction of sin was upon them. But they weren't just under the burden of their own sin. It was like God was moving on them in deep repentance for the sins of Argentina. See, Dr. Miller had his personal breakthrough, and then he had like a corporate breakthrough that opened something up in the region. But now... God was using these Bible school students that they were under the weight of the, it was like vicarious repentance under the weight of the burden of the sins of Argentina. And they were deeply repenting, 1951. So the students and missionaries wept so much. Dr. Miller said that they would, be, they would lay there on their face for hours. He said the only thing, you would hear the moans, you would see their bodies kind of convulsed because they were weeping, tears were flowing, he said that tears would flow across an unpainted brick floor and form puddles. He said it was nothing to see them on their face for hours weeping, but he said he would not have believed it possible for human beings to weep that much had he had not seen it himself. There were pools of tears. The students eventually moved to where they began to denounce all the works of the world, all the works of the flesh, and the devil, and they completely rejected Satan's rulership over their lives in any area. So the angelic visitations and the powerful prayers continued for a total of four months. But the deep period of heart-wrenching repentance lasted for those first 10 weeks. Now hear this, because this is the most important part. Now I'm going to start kind of bringing this to a close, but I want you to see that you, there has to be persistence. In September of 1951, the Lord spoke prophetically to the intercessors there in City Bell and said this. He said, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah has roared over Argentina. The ruling powers and principalities have been cast down. You have an open heaven because I have found 50 righteous Argentinians who would renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. There is now an open heaven. They paid the price. Isn't that awesome? 
I'm going to tell you a few more things before we close this out, but I want you to think about what I'm saying. River of life, would we be willing to yield to God doing that in us? I am. Are we willing to really yield to that type of a deep burden and intercession, a horrific conviction for America? To come under the burden, to pray something through, see something really shift over our nation, over this region. This region needs revival. But let me kind of tell you what the outworking of that is because when, they, when this happened, something broke over all of Argentina. Number one, Juan Perón and his wife, Evita, they, they were in power, but he was the president, okay? But his, his wife, Evita, was, um, she was a Jezebel. I know Hollywood glamorized her as really being something because she was beautiful, educated, and all that. But um, she was a very power-hungry woman. And she tried to run. He was president. She tried to run for vice president. And if she had won that, it would have consolidated all the power between the two of them. But the military stepped in and forced her to remove her bid. She was very power-hungry. And she was deeply involved in witchcraft. In fact, spiritism, necromancy, holding seances, etc. And she was actually held a national convention to try to get people into necromancy and witchcraft. She was trying to lead the nation that direction. Now remember that these intercessors just broke something over all of Argentina. So God told them, he said to them, because she's trying to lead the nation into witchcraft, the Lord told them she was going to die, and he told them how she was going to die, and it was a miserable death. And, and God said, not only will she die, but I'm going to remove every person from power that she ever put in power. God was going to break the power of that Jezebel spirit right there. Sure enough, not long after that, she was ill and she died a miserable death. And over the next year after her death, every single person she had put in power died, including her brother who died in a shooting. Every single person. God eradicated that Jezebel spirit. But something broke. And because something broke, God intervened. He stepped in himself to deal with some things in that political arena, see? She was trying to lead the nation down a different path. But at the same time, it could have been, Lila wrote about this in her book, it could have been that day when, when the Lord said, weep no more, the lion of the tribe of Judah has roared. It could have been that very day. But in California, there was an evangelist that was not real well known but this was the time, remember, the 40s and 50s when we were seeing great healings and miracles in America. Many know of Oral Roberts, but there were many other evangelists that were mightily used. One of them was a relatively unknown man by the name of Tommy Hicks. And God spoke to him out of nowhere. He was at home. He was actually visiting somebody, rather, in their guest bedroom. At night, God spoke to him and said, I want you to go to Argentina and pray for a man named Peron. He didn't know who Peron was. I couldn't tell you right now because I don't keep up with Argentine politics. I don't know who the president of Argentina is right now. 
And he, did, he had no idea who Perón was, but God spoke to him and said, I want you to go to Argentina and pray for Perón. So Tommy Hicks, a few years later, it worked out because Edward Miller and some others began to come together and say, we need to hold an evangelistic event. Up until this time, to hold an event that had maybe 2,500 people was huge, massive. And they tried to get T.L. Osborne and some others to come, but nobody could come. So they end up settling on this unknown healing evangelist named Tommy Hicks, and they invite him to come. And Tommy Hicks remembered God told him, I want you to pray for a guy named Perone. So he gets on the airplane. He's, there, he's heading toward Argentina. And, you know, the stewardess is from Argentina. And he says, so do you happen to know anybody named Perone when I get to Argentina? And she said, well, no, but our president's named Perone. And he said, okay. And so and you got to understand, this guy, Tommy Hicks, had a lot of faith. So he tells the people there, those missionaries, he says, when I get there, we're going to rent a facility, a soccer stadium that sees 25,000 people. And those missionaries and others said, forget it, man. I mean, for us to do a 2,500 people is a big deal. And not only that, but you've got to get presidential approval to rent the soccer stadium. He said, forget it. We're not going to do it. And Tommy Hicks comes and says, well, I feel God wants us to do it, and that's what we need to do. And so he gets there, and he goes straight to meet with President Perón. And there was a guard there who was kind of short with him, kind of rude. Who are you? He said, well, my name is Tommy Hicks. I'm here to, I want to meet with the president. And he goes, really? He said, well, why do you want to meet with the president? And he said, well, because I'm an evangelist coming here, and I want to preach the gospel, and I want to rent that stadium out there. And not only that, but I'm going to pray for the sick, and God's going to heal sick people. And the guard says, you really believe all that? He said, I sure do, and it's going to happen. And the guard said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, I've had this health battle. He said, you think God can heal me? He said, I sure do. Took his hand, prayed for him, and all the pain left him instantly. So the guard was in such awe because he felt the power of God shoot through him. He says, Tommy, come back tomorrow, and I'll make a way for you to meet with the president. And what Tommy didn't know was after that Avita Perone had died that Juan Perone had a skin disease that got really bad. It was so bad, disfiguring, he wouldn't allow pictures for the last couple years. He was in a lot of pain. And so they allowed Tommy Hicks to go in and meet with President Perone. And, and Tommy Hicks told Dr. Miller exactly what happened. He was ushered in. There was other people there. But he said Juan Perone was very nice to him. He said, come on in, have a seat. What can I do for you? you know, and talk to him and and he told Juan Perón just flat out, he said, look, he said, I'm here as an evangelist. I want to preach the gospel in this country, and I want to pray for the sick, and God's going to heal sick people. And he said, I need to rent that soccer stadium. I feel God wants me to rent it, and I know that you're the one that has to approve it. And he said, I also want radio and airtime. And Juan Perón says, well, he says, I've had this skin condition. Do you think God can heal me? And all of a sudden, Tommy's remembering, God told him, I want you to go to Argentina. I want you to pray for a man named Perone. So he says, as a matter of fact, I do believe God can heal you. And he takes his hand, he prays for him. And there were other people there that said that right before all their eyes, his skin was completely restored like brand new. Every trace of it disappeared. President Perone was so blown away by this. He said, Tommy Hicks, he said, I'm going to give you whatever you want. 
He said, you want the soccer stadium? You got it, radio, airtime, whatever, full ride ticket, whatever you need. And he goes, listen to this. You remember those missionaries saying, forget the soccer stadium? Something broke when Edward Miller's group prayed and the Lion of the tribe of Judah roared. And for the first time, Argentina had always been so backward. It was such a difficult place. For the first time, people began to come to this soccer stadium and they ended up filling it up to overflowing, 25,000 people. There were so many more people that they couldn't get in that it ended up that they had to move the thing to a bullfighting stadium that seated 180,000 people. They filled that and there was over, over 200,000 people that came. There were so many people over the course, I believe, 62 days. There were so many people that got saved and got healed that even when President Prone got healed in the, his office, there was a governor there. The governor brings his wife to the meetings. His wife had a heart condition. She was healed. So God broke something open now in Argentina because of persistent prayer and deep repentance and fasting. Isn't that awesome? But it took persistence. And we know the rest of its history. We know that, uh, you know, I don't know what happened through the 70s, but in the, maybe the 60s, but I do know in the 80s that God, God really spoke to Carlos Anacondia to begin his crusades in La Plata. And the Argentine revival exploded in the 80s. It was so powerful. They said that they were churches that had to keep their doors open for 23 hours a day to accommodate all the people that were getting saved. The power of God was so strong in the, the mid to late 80s that, that it exceeded the new birth rate of people being born again exceeded the national actual physical birth rate. Carlos Anacondia, man, they saw there were times when they would set up their you know, their platform and all that, and they would go through the city. There were times that it seemed like the entire area got saved. They had such amazing miracles. And Steve Hill was there during the Archtime Revival, and, and there was a guy that told him, said, do you want to know why the power of God is so strong? Do you want to know why? And he began to talk to him. See, Carlos and them would really pray, God, where are you sending us next? And God would speak to them about a city they need to go to. And they would begin to pray and fast and seek God to go before them and bind up the enemy and open things up for the gospel. And they would not go there till they felt in their spirit that God had went before them and gave them the victory. Then they would come in. And the man took Steve and Jerry around. He said, let me show you something. Took them around there. Carlos had his platform set up and, you know, the chairs are out there and all that. And he takes him back behind the stage. And he says, look at this. And he picks up a curtain and underneath the stage from behind, there were all these people under there that were weeping and wailing in deep travail, deep intercession. He said, that's why the revival. And Carlos Anacondia would get up, and he was standing, literally standing on a platform that people under him were groaning in travail. And he would take authority, listen to me, Satan, I bind you. And all of a sudden, people out there by the hundreds sometimes would collapse under the power of God. Some of them manifesting demons. You have to get taken off. And it was amazing what God did. Amazing miracles, signs and wonders. But it all went back to a burned out missionary that God said, I want you to persist in dry, difficult prayer for eight hours a day. 
Isn't that something? Persistence. There's something to be said about, and I, I close with this scripture, Luke 18. Do you remember this, the parable Jesus said about the unjust judge? Jesus said there was this widow lady that was desperate. She was poor. And she would go to this unjust judge every day and say, please give me my petition. And the unjust judge, Jesus said, he didn't care about God. He didn't care, any, care about people. And he didn't care nothing about that lady. Eh, get out of here. But she kept coming every day. And every, every day, just kept coming. And her persistence, finally, the unjust judge said, this woman's wearing me out. Just give her whatever she wants so she'll leave me alone. And she got her petition. And Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Her persistence is what brought it. And Jesus said, how much more so will your Father in heaven give you, give you the request as his children? How much more so? If an unjust judge would do it, how much more so will your Father? But Jesus said this. He said, listen, when the Son of Man comes, he'll find faith in the earth. You know, there's something about, I do believe in the word of faith. I do believe in praying about something and standing on it and, and believing it. You speak it to be done. I believe in that and I practice that. But I'm going to tell you that some things, that will not work. There are some things that you're going to have to persist in prayer and fasting until you get on the other side in prayer. I mean, deep prayer, persistent prayer, until you get that thing birthed, until you get that thing moved persistence. Jesus said, keep asking and you'll receive. Keep seeking and you'll find. Keep knocking, it'll be opened unto you. What did the Bible say? He said, you will receive. Do not grow weary in well-doing for in due season you will reap if you faint not. There are a lot of people, they start down that road where it's difficult. You know, there's a lot of people in James McGreedy's shoes that when they burned down his pulpit and said, we don't want you here, would have got out of the ministry, wouldn't they have? But he didn't. He stood on the ashes and preached again, and then he ended up planting a church and seeing a major... Look, you cannot give up. You've got to be persistent about these things, and you've got to push through. So, Lord, we just thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this time. And, Lord, those that are here, I believe there's a lot of people in the sound of my voice that feel this way, but, Lord, come on us in a way... Lord, to see something really birth that you're wanting to do in this region, in this nation. Lord, like you did, Edward uh, Miller and those in that Bible school, Lord, I believe there's people here in River of Life that, Lord, are open to that. Lord, that you would come in such a way to help pray through to birth what God wants to do. We thank you for it. We bless you in Jesus' name. All right, let me know when the recordings are shut out. Can you just play some music? I want us just where you're at in the moment here, I want us to, to pray. And I'm going to ask the Lord to really come upon you intercessor.